0: Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Moira O'Neill, an Associate Professor in Urban and Environmental Planning at the School of Architecture at the University of Virginia. She also holds an additional appointment at UVA School of Law. O'Neill's interdisciplinary research and teaching focuses on land use, climate, and resilience. Her research examines state and local government efforts to mitigate the impacts of climate change, while also addressing inequality. She's a principal investigator on a study of of land use regulations in cities and exurban areas, the Comprehensive Assessment of Land Use Entitlement Studies. This study contributes new data to housing policy debates about which regulations promote housing affordability, integration, and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. In this podcast, Professor O'Neill will talk with us about her research. So thank you, Professor O'Neill, for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. So your research profile says that you use interdisciplinary methods to understand how state and local governments are working to address the impacts of climate and while also addressing inequality. Can you share more about what you mean by this or possibly provide some context and examples of your work?
1: Sure. So broadly, I'm interested in how state and local governments are trying to solve for multiple challenges at the same time. And I'm also interested in how policy moves from paper to practice. So I'll provide an example from my land use law research, the study that you referenced. In this research, I'm really interested in understanding how local governments write and apply land use regulation to address the impacts of climate change, while also trying to promote affordability, inclusion and integration. And my goal in this work is to try to produce what I describe as actionable insights that policymakers can use to tackle the challenges of climate change and inequality at the same time. So to explore this question, I gather and analyze a lot of different types of data on how local governments apply land use regulation to specific types of development over time. And I do this work as part of a team. I work with multiple scholars and students that cross disciplines so that we can look at the same question from Different angles. And I blend legal research with planning research methods so that I can explore this topic using different tools and different kinds of data. So, for example, I might start with research and reading through statutes and regulations, and then I'll move on to researching how governments apply those regulations by analyzing and coding development approval documents. So, the documents associated with proposals to develop housing or mixed use development that includes housing and other uses like retail. And I'll also look carefully at staff reports. So I'll bring in a lot of students to help me read through a number of documents and then code them, particularly legal documents, so that we can then do different kinds of analysis, including use of descriptive statistics to calculate timeframes for different kinds of proposed development or spatial analysis, like mapping. So, for example, mapping allows us to look at how governments apply law in relationship to a particular location and environmental conditions. For example, there might be maps that document the presence of high wildfire risk or a risk of sea level rise. And so we can layer all of our coding, uh, our coded legal documents over those maps to sort of see trends in terms of how governments are applying law in relationship to those risks. And we also layer in interviews and document analysis so that we can nuance everything we're learning through statistics or mapping and to build in and understand better context. So in general, I use these different methods and these different kinds of data to answer questions like what is happening within any given city, because my larger aim is to provide the kind of analysis that's actually useful for the community and the policymakers within the area that I'm studying. So in the land use context, specifically around housing, for example, my goal is to gather the data that's needed to shed light on the practices and policies of local governments. So we can reveal how they're advancing or maybe even if inadvertently thwarting their own land use goals for housing or climate and, and more such as trying to address inequality. So the research is meant to increase transparency and that is to help make it more possible for leaders and the public to measure progress along specific policy goals so they can identify what needs to be adjusted or if anything needs to be adjusted.
0: Great. Thank you. So what have you learned so far from this research?
1: Well, in the California context, I've learned that at least some local governments might be applying land use law in ways that actually thwart their own local policy goals to address climate change and affordability. So, for example, some of the cities I've studied with colleagues have created local policies to try to expedite review and approval of more sustainable development or development that would offer denser housing near transportation and jobs and more affordable development or housing that is below market rate prices and affordable to lower income housing households. But when we pull out the data to examine exactly how they're applying these these laws and other law and policy, we find out that they're not always achieving their own stated policy goals. But we've also learned there's not really a general quick fix. So for example, one city that I've studied with colleagues in depth is the city of San Diego. And in that city, the data that we have suggests that the local government perceived that process and hearings were holding up approving housing development that they felt would meet their climate and affordability goals. So they appeared to prioritize reforming that dimension of their local law and planning practice. So specifically, they looked carefully at where they could approve housing using a planning staff member's review rather than a public hearing to try to help move certain kinds of development faster through their process requirements. But it doesn't appear that they tackled other dimensions of their local law that would make those reforms impactful, such as whether they had enough land area zoned for the type of housing that they said they wanted in their jurisdiction so in that in the years that we studied that particular city in San Diego, the data indicates the city probably isn't wasn't seeing the impact that they hoped for. and at the same time, another city we studied at, at, during the same years revealed something totally different, the complete opposite. San Francisco is one of the other cities that I've studied in depth with colleagues. And that's a city that we could describe the data showing that they've zoned a fair amount of land for dense housing near transportation and near jobs. So that theoretically would promote their affordability goals and their climate goals because they're zoning for dense, potentially affordable housing near transportation and job opportunities but they have not done very well with their procedural requirements or the requirements around hearings and different procedural steps. And in practice, the data indicates that San Francisco's local procedural requirements essentially foreclose opportunities for many affordable and middle income housing developers entirely. That's probably contrary to what they would like to see happen as well. So the findings that I just described signal that both cities, San Diego and San Francisco, are not promoting their own or the state's climate and housing policy goals very well, but for entirely different reasons. And what's notable about that, it's not for lack of local effort. Both cities are trying. They're just failing to meet their own and the state's goals.
0: I see. So what does your data usually signal regarding local governments and their abilities to implement policies to address climate change? Are there success stories or, or are they falling short?
1: No, I think there are success stories. I think there are certainly cities that are applying law in a way that prioritizes supporting development that meets their climate goals and would achieve more affordability. But I do think that overall, what we've learned across all of the cities we've studied is that there's a lot of work still to do to calibrate policy, to protect opportunities for input and local participation in zoning and planning, while also making sure we actually get to the results we need to provide housing for all income groups and still design and build housing in a way to intentionally reduce our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So how do you think uh, local governments can accomplish these multiple priorities?
1: Well, pretty consistent with the way I approach my work, I have to say that the specifics of how are always going to depend on the geography, the people and the regulatory context of any given county, city or town and the state that they're located within. So that's part of what drives my approach to this research. So I spend my time working with others, pulling together and coding a lot of different data from several individual places. And I broadly do think that good data or good information can help illuminate the specifics of how in any given place. So in the cities I've studied so far, during the time period that I was researching, The state actually had law in place to help promote the production of housing for all income groups and to protect the environment and to balance participation goals against the need to increase housing production Right, So they wanted to increase transparency around public decision-making that impacts the built environment. They also wanna address housing production. They wanna also make sure all income groups have access communities. But during this study, I think we definitely learned that some of the governments that we were studying, some of the local governments that we're studying, did not apply these laws with equal force. Or in some cases, you could even go so far as to say that they just failed to follow some state law entirely.
0: Great. It sounds like there are many stakeholders involved in these processes and that lends to the complexity of the issue. Do you think that these impacts are going unnoticed?
1: There are many stakeholders involved in these process. That's absolutely right. And I do think that the different stakeholders add to the complexity of the issue because different stakeholders have different needs out of the development process. I would say that our data indicates that people within any any one of these geographies that we studied, there are people that do understand exactly what was happening, or at least that some of the stakeholders understood that this was happening, that some local governments were maybe not enforcing or applying certain state requirements. But it's not a, a really simple issue to address or solve for at a project by project level. So ex- for example, individual developers that we interviewed certainly indicated that they were aware of some of these issues, but they're, they're not necessarily in a position to be comfortable challenging the city or reporting out on the city if they're actually also trying to negotiate with that same city. And that's that's true for both affordable and market rate developers. So that that limits the ability to resolve this issue on a project by project level. One of the recent developments though that we've observed in state law that I'm really appreciative of given the work I've been involved in is a, a new state law or relatively new state law within California, for example, that created an information forcing Component or requirement, while it was also trying to tackle a range of different policy priorities. So right now, I'm in the process of writing up some analysis on how local governments have been implying this relatively recent state law that primary its primary task is to allow basically below market rate housing development that's proposed in urban places that meets a whole host of criteria to move faster through approval processes. And so an important aspect of this law is that it allows this below market rate housing that conforms to local zoning and planning and is not located on environmentally sensitive sites to be processed within a specified number of days, right? So there's a limit in terms of the amount of time that a local government can take to, to process this proposal for development. And it also allows the proposal to bypass or avoid state environmental review entirely and this only exists in cities that have failed to honor their low-income housing production obligations so what this law is in effect trying to do is is it's actually trying to balance participation and input against the need to build dense housing in the places where we need it for low-income house households so it's not intervening in local power over process over zoning, planning, or design. It's only intervening over process timeframes. So the big takeaway is that it, essentially tell, it is essentially telling local governments that haven't met their housing production goals, you can still zone and plan. And once you do that, you just can't drag out the approval process on below market rate housing that conforms to your own plan in your own zoning and meets a range of other criteria, including where it's cited and how, what kind of labor it uses to construct the building. But one of the most interesting aspects of this law for me is not only it's, it's sort of deal-making or the balance it's striking between participation and local power and the ability to achieve certain end results in terms of production. It's also how it's changing the way cities and counties have to report information on how they approve and what they approve or deny to the state in terms of housing development. And I think this is so significant Because that new information forcing requirement, that's a component of this state law that I just described, it actually does a lot of the work to answer the question you posed on how, how do we do this? Because the data that's coming out of these local places now across the state goes up to a team within the state's Department of Housing and Community Development. And that team uses this data to produce a data dashboard. And that data dashboard in turn allows the public and all policymakers to see how cities are saying that they're doing in terms of housing development and production. So now anyone can immediately see if cities that are near jobs and have more transportation are reporting out approving more or less housing than say cities in more rural or agricultural spaces. And you can also see what kinds of housing these places are approving. You can see if more production is coming through dividing land and single family housing units or through the building of apartments. And whether we need more or less apartments depends a great deal on the place that we're looking at. And this is the kind of information that can really help with local and state level policymaking.
0: Great, thank you. That's that's a lot of great information. So lastly, given these new developments, um, where do you see your research fitting in with all of this? And how do you think it'll help policymakers address climate change issues?
1: Well, I have two big priorities with this area of my research right now. And the first sort of connects in with supporting the places I've already studied with their own data management and reporting requirements. So I'm using the data I've gathered with others and I'm working with the state and I'm working with city level planners to help these planners answer questions about what they need to do for their own policymaking. And I'm allowing them to ask the questions, right? So they frame the questions and I use this data to help answer them. But I'm also wanting to expand this work outside of California and into new regions and new states, because the challenges that I observed in California are not specific or local to California, right? The challenge of trying to address climate and housing affordability and housing supply, these are challenges that impact our major high cost metros nationally, including for example, the DC, Maryland, Virginia metro area. So I'm exploring right now how to expand some of these same research methods into these new geographies with students here at UVA.
0: That's great, thank you so much. Um, So thank you, uh, Professor O'Neill. I know that this is a lot of really great information and gives us all something to think about um, in regard to all these different pieces of of climate change, of land use and inequality and the complexity of of all of it. So thank you so much uh, for sharing this information about your research, you know, climate change is such an important topic. And it's important to understand the efforts that are taking place right now at state and local governments. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends and families. Oh, thank you for hosting me. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcast on Spotify, and with the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to taking part in future lifetime learning programs.